Last week we saw that uh, Charles Hodge uh, divided guidance up into three uh, parts, and I thought it was a very helpful division. He said, guidance is partly providential, ordering their external circumstances, partly through the word, which is a lamp to their feet, and partly by the inward influence of the spirit on the mind. And we saw that uh, those three dimensions are uh, things that we need to tie together, and they definitely dovetail together when they come from the Lord. Let me just put this up, up there. The most important one, because it's the only authoritative one, is biblical guidance. It's the Spirit's authority in our lives. And then on the left-hand side is providential guidance. It's His ordering of our affairs perfectly to suit His glory and for our good. And then the subjective guidance, it's His Spirit within us, illumining our minds and uh, revealing Himself to us in various ways. And we looked at uh, 13 different ways in the first sermon in which God brings a subjective uh, revelation like the, the law of God written on the heart, uh, the knowledge of His existence, uh, the, uh, the promptings and premonitions and things uh, of that nature, but the three of those need to dovetail together, and one of the examples that we gave was of David. He was internally called by God, he met all the biblical qualifications, he's anointed by the Spirit and gifted, but he does not seize the throne until God providentially causes the people to vote him in and to anoint him with oil. Uh, all three dovetail together. When uh, a minister comes to presbytery to be examined and uh, wants to come into the ministry. The uh, a presbytery will examine to see if all three are in place. Does he have the biblical qualifications? And they usually have a one-year internship where they can test him to see, you know, is he really, he says he is, but is he really qualified? And then they'll ask, you know, is he subjectively qualified? Uh, I mean, su subjectively called by God's Spirit. And what about providence? And there are all kinds of questions they ask to try to discern this. They will um, say, you know, does your church locally believe that you are called? And what is the evidence? And does your family think you're called? And is your family uh, going to be able to stand up to the rigors of uh, ministry? And what is the evidence of these things? And so all three need to dovetail together. And again, as I said, only the Bible is normative. Another way of saying this is you look to the Bible for God's moral law. You look to the Bible for knowing how to please uh, the Lord. Uh, the Bible judges and interprets providence, and so you've got an arrow going down from the top to the left-hand side. Uh, it judges and interprets the subjective guidance, and so you've got an arrow going from the top to the right as well. The bottom arrow is just linear time. It just means... You know, time will show whether it really was God's guidance or not, um, and uh, it will be demonstrated. Now, the sad thing that has happened in the modern church is that many people ignore the clear-cut statements given in the Bible, and that's a portion of God's guidance. They ignore that because they feel led by the Lord, or they ignore that because God has given an open door to them. And so we looked at a number of scriptures. One of them was 1 Samuel 24, verse 1, where we see that God moved the heart of David, but it was a testing time. Would David follow these internal promptings or would he follow the scriptures? And God blasted him because 
um, he, he did not uh, stick by the, the scripture. So no matter how strong the internal motivations may be and how providence and other things may line up, if it contradicts the Bible, it's not God's guidance, period. Okay, there are many counterfeits out there, even Satan. Uh, in fact, in that particular passage, it was Satan who moved uh, David's heart, but it was with the Lord's permission as a test. Now, even beyond that, we've seen that uh, feelings are not normative, open doors are not normative, and when we say that, we say that, number one, you can't ignore the Scripture, but number two, you cannot add commandments to the Scripture, and that's a very important point as well. Only the Bible may bind your conscience. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, The Bible is sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not for some, not for most, for every good work, okay? So that means if your conscience is troubling you about something the Bible has given you perfectly liberty to do and says, this is an okay thing, that means your conscience is defective. And what happens with legalists is a lot of times because their conscience is troubled, they allow their subjective feelings to dictate what the Bible says. And it's adding to the scripture, only the Bible is normative. And the weak conscience, the subjective, is not lining up with the, the Scripture, and so they've actually reversed the arrows on that chart. And that's why we need to really be careful when people say, I have to, or I ought to, or I must obey the Lord, uh, when it comes to subjective leading. Uh, subjective leading can make us aware. It can give us motivation. In fact, it can give us incredible motivation to do something. It gives us insight, but only the Bible can define whether it's sin or not whether you have liberty to ignore it or not. Only the Bible can define that. And let me just give you a concrete example. I know of um, a very prominent missionary who was at a dinner party, and he walked up to a lady and told her that the Lord had just given him, I don't know if he said, the Lord has just revealed to me or the Lord has just given me guidance that you're to be my future wife. Will you obey the Lord's will for your life? And uh, if I was in her shoes, I would have run, you know, or I would have at least have said, well, he's not shown me yet, you know, and uh, the Lord shows me, that'd be great, you know, we'll talk about that. But the thing that troubled me about that statement when I read that in the missionary biography was that it was framed as a moral imperative. Are you going to obey the Lord? And sadly, this woman, I mean, it turned out okay later, but sadly, she thought, well, who am I to disobey the Lord? If he's led, I guess I have to obey. And I would say nonsense. Only the Bible can bind your conscience. Now, if you want to marry him, that's, a, that's, a, that's another thing. But it's not an issue of obedience or disobedience uh, to the Lord. Uh, actually, that can be a form uh, of legalism. If you cannot prove it from the Scripture, uh, then you cannot say that the person is out of the will of the Lord. Okay? Now, internally, you may be motivated in a given direction, but somebody else cannot bind your conscience in that way. And so what this lady um, uh, should do in that situation is to say, well, number one, does this meet the biblical guidelines? Nope, you have an unbiblical divorce, and so it doesn't matter how strong the leading may be, um, it's obviously not from the Lord because God does not contradict himself, and the Bible says that I cannot marry you. And so you look at the biblical uh, criteria, you look at the, whether providence is enabling this to be, uh, you look at the subjective guidance and see if they all uh, line up. Um, I've seen on 
committees and in other situations where people use as a manipulative technique, uh, the Lord has led me to do this, and so we have to do it. You can't argue with the Lord, you know, that type of a thing. I think we need to avoid that. Now, having said that, We've seen last week, there's a lot of extremes on this side. Then what happens in us, our reform circles is we go to the opposite extreme. Say, we don't want anything to do with providential guidance or anything to do with subjective guidance. And we said, that goes way too far because subjective guidance is biblical. And it's very, very useful. Apart from the Holy Spirit, for example, convicting people internally of their sins, you can preach the word to them all you want, and it's not going to make a dent upon them. The Holy Spirit internally needs to bring to their minds the, the word that's external. The same is true of our, of our um, uh, study of the scriptures, illumination. If God does not illuminate our minds as believers, the scripture says we will not understand. And that's why the prayer in Psalm 118 needs to be our prayer. Or is it Psalm 119? Where he says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. It needs to be our prayer that God would guide us in every area. Apart from burdens and promptings, there are a lot of people would never be motivated to be involved in ministries that were, are dangerous, require a lot of sacrifice. God's move in their hearts in that direction. Uh, subjective guidance makes us aware of issues that uh, we wouldn't otherwise investigate. So anyway, we looked at several examples of providential guidance, several examples of subjective, and then we started diving into the tests. Why do we need tests of guidance? Well, the reason for that is because our understanding of the Bible, providence, and even our subjective feelings can many times be mistaken. And so we've got to examine, we're not infallible, right? Sometimes people treat their subjective guidance as infallible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off, dive into your outlines at point number 13. Thirteenth question is, have you used the common sense wisdom that God has already given? Another uh, way of saying it is, do you know the answer already? If you already know the answer, it's silly to say, well, let me go home and pray about it for a week and seek God's guidance, because if you go home and wait a week, it may be that you will miss that opportunity to pick up the apartment or to land that job. Uh, we need to start every day with a prayer for wisdom, because many times there are decisions you have to instantaneously make flying by the seat of your pants, as it were, when you're going through the day. You don't have the luxury, and yet some people feel it's not a spiritual thing if I don't go and pray for a week. Um, if you already, God's already given you the wisdom, he's already opened your eyes to know, uh, you can make the decision uh, immediately. In fact, I've had uh, people, when it comes to the normative guidance uh, in the Bible, they want to delay. Uh, but if the Bible's guided you, delay and praying for a week is disobedience, okay? It's not... It's not really seeking the Lord's will. And people have come up to me and said, Phil, what do you think I should do? And as they start talking, they say, oh, I already know what I should do. <laughs> I was just hoping maybe you could talk me out of it. They were uncomfortable with it. But the very act of talking with me helped them to realize what the answer was. Okay, second, 14th question was added because some people assume the opposite to be true. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I assumed if there was a choice between doing something miserable and doing something that uh, was really fun to do, the Lord's will was the miserable thing. And uh, I came to realize God is so gracious. He delights to delight his people, and that's not the way we should look at life. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When we put God first, 
God pours back into our lives all kinds of blessings. In fact, Mark 10 is one of my favorite passages uh, where uh, the disciples have given up everything to follow the Lord. And he says, no one who has given up houses and lands, and I'm getting it all mixed up, but wives and children and all of that kind of stuff. He says, there isn't anybody that I will not give back 100-fold into their lives. We enjoy it 100 times more. And so I think this is an important principle to, 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 to realize that God delights in giving pleasure to his people. And so I've had people come to me on occasion and say, Pastor, I just don't know which way I should go. Here's two choices. And we've worked through all of the different details. And we've seen that, you know, both choices are equally biblical. Both choices are equally possible providentially. They're both useful. They go through all the other criteria. So I just ask them, you know, which, which of these things would bring you the most joy? And they instantly say, choice B. And I said, go for it. Go for it. God's you're not a killjoy, you know. He's not going to force you to marry somebody that you could barely tolerate, you know, living with. And I think most people buy that for marriage, but why do they not buy it for many other issues in life? Our God is a God who delights to delight his people. In fact, many times he puts those desires in our heart in the first place. But point 15 is a balance to this because we can be very often self-deceived. And so we've got to examine, is this a sinful desire? Or is it a, a godly desire that I have? Why do I want to do this? Am I really delighting myself in the Lord? Because that verse we just read, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Maybe it's not a situation where I'm delighting in the Lord. This is a carnal desire that I am after. But when we are godly, we're putting God first, he arouses within our breast desires that he delights uh, to give to us. And so there really is a, a balance that we have to uh, that we have to uh, have there. Psalm 139, 24. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oops, I, I skipped ahead. Um, it's Proverbs 21, 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Many times I don't even know if my motives are pure. So I have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, examine my motives. I think they're pure, but you show me if there is any wicked way in me and if my desires have the right motivation. Okay, number 16, and I really should have started with number 16, is it lawful? And I was putting this together too fast. If I ever do this sermon again, I'll you know, change the order, I'll amalgamate some of these points, because there is a little bit of duplication here. But this is really the foundational point. Uh, is it biblically lawful? And if you don't know, ask other people. It, you, you see anything biblically wrong with my doing such and such, make sure you get a proof text from them because there's a lot of legalists out there. But uh, again, that, that, that verse I read earlier, we should pray Psalm 139, 24. Lord, see if there is any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. 17, is it profitable? Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Now let me just pause for a moment because this has been subject to a lot of misunderstanding. Some people think, well, this just throws out the law of God altogether. Everything's lawful. And uh, <clears throat> in context, what he is saying is all of the things that these legalists have been debating in the church are lawful. He's saying, don't worry about that. He's not saying it in an absolute sense that all things are lawful, or he'd contradict himself because he goes on to say that, um, that uh, adultery and fornication and he lists a number of things, are unlawful and they are sinful. So that, that's not what he is saying. He is saying the things that they are debating, like for example, the legalists thought it was unlawful 
for people to get married. They had to be celibate. And he says, no, that's lawful. It's lawful to drink. It's lawful to eat meat. It's lawful to eat things prepared by pagans. So that's the context. Let me read it again. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And so you might be doing something that is lawful in and of itself, but because it is controlling you, it may be something that you have to, for a season, completely do away with. For example, TV is lawful. Well, not all TV uh, programs are lawful, but TV in itself is lawful. Entertainment is lawful. But you have to ask yourself, is it helpful? Uh, is this something that is controlling me? Is this something that uh, is hindering my walk with the Lord? Um, caffeine. Perfectly lawful to eat caffeine, right? And a uh, number of you out there, yay. It's, it's, but if you're addicted to it, then it's controlling you, right? And so it may be for a period of time. You may have to kick caffeine altogether so that it is not controlling you. Um, reading a newspaper is lawful for me, right? But I may have a given day in the week when I have got so much work to do, if I take the time to read the newspaper, it's going to really stress out and, and mess up my day. So it's perfectly lawful to read, but it's not helpful. It's not helpful for that day. So that's the point that is given there. It's not enough that the Bible permits it. We need to ask if in this circumstance it's helpful and edifies or if I should wait. Am I controlled by it? Point 18, I've already mentioned that. Am I causing someone else to stumble? Point 19. Now, point 19 has been so abused in the evangelical community that I think I do need to spend a little bit more time explaining this. When Paul says, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak, he is not indicating that the weak should rule the church or should dictate their conscience upon the whole church. Causing someone to stumble does not mean disagreeing with that person or it does not even mean doing things that that person wouldn't do. What it means is trying to pressure those people into doing what their conscience says they should not because it will place them in a position of sinning against their conscience. And so what Paul wants, he wants the weak person instructed in their conscience, weaned from the weak nature, but he does not want their conscience violated. And so Paul, right off the bat, he tells these weak Christians, look, you guys are wrong. It is biblical to get married. It's biblical to eat meat. It's biblical to drink. It's biblical to eat things offered to idols. He says, you're wrong on that. But then he goes on and he instructs the strong brethren. He says, when weak brethren like this come into the church, make sure that you are gentle with them, that you don't push them and change faster than their conscience is able to bear. You need to instruct them from the scriptures. And uh, one of the best explanations I've seen on those passages is by Metter in his book on, on guidance. Anyway, point 19 is still important in decision-making. Will exercising my liberty cause someone else to stumble into sin? That's the key point. Number 20 asks, does it edify others or show them love? 1 Corinthians 10 goes on to say, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean they're going to interpret what you do as being the loving thing. For example, the loving thing may be uh, to pull them out of their sin and to bring a rebuke into their lives, and they don't want that rebuke. 
but it is still the loving thing. It may be the loving thing to exercise your liberty because this person isn't a weak Christian. He's really a legalist. He's really a Pharisee. And so you have to evaluate. Is this something that is the loving thing? Is it going to build them up? Is it going to edify that person? If it's not, it may be something I want to forego doing. Um, We need to be aware of the tyranny of the weaker brother, but at the same time, we need to avoid needlessly antagonizing. And some people just seem to take delight in flaunting their liberty and antagonizing others. So we have to ask, is this really the loving thing to do in this situation? 21, does it glorify God? Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify you, but glorify your Father. And so if we are, if we're engaging in work, but we don't want people to know that we're a Christian, we're engaging in things that are right, but we're hiding our light under a bushel, we don't want people to find out we're doing it for biblical reasons because we're ashamed. That's not glorifying God. The only glory that's going to go anywhere is to us. Point 22. Is this an area of weakness that if God answered it, could make me stumble? Jesus says that even a good thing like an eye or a hand, and the Bible says, you know, it's a good thing, it's a gift from God, even an eye or a hand, if it causes you to stumble, needs to be plucked out and thrown away Uh, from you, cast away. I went to seminary with a guy who was an avid sailor. And uh, there was nothing wrong with sailing, but he said that the sailboat had become an absolute idol in his life. He spent so many hours every day polishing the boat and admiring it and sailing it that he said he, he had to just get rid of his idol for a period of years before he was able to, to handle it in a, in a godly way. And the Proverbs passage indicates that either poverty or riches can be a stumbling block. And you can read that on your own. So you need to know, what are my weaknesses? Maybe somebody else can have this, but if I had it, I'd be in trouble. Point number 23, will this slow you down in your race or weigh you down from being able to effectively serve the Lord? Hebrews 12:1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, you only have so many hours in a day. If, if I did everything I had an interest in doing, uh, 60 hours a day probably would not be enough. We don't have 60 hours, so we've got to prioritize, right? We've got to ditch some things. We've got to say, okay, here's the top priorities. And are these things going to weigh me down and slow me down from achieving these priorities? And then we have to say no to some of those things uh, in our lives. Now, in that point, I do give a balance, and I think it's an important one, because many times we assume that our race is what we want to do. It's our agendas. And the Lord brings along a divine opportunity for us to be involved in some ministry, and it, like, irritates us, you know, because we've got our agenda of what we want to do, um, and um, it's slowing us down. A pastor uh, at Presbytery told me this past week uh, that he had somebody in his congregation that I think it was going to a funeral, um, but it may have been a wedding. Uh, But I think it was going to a funeral, And he walked past this florist, and he was thinking, you know, I really should go into that florist and get some flowers uh, for this. And he thought, no, I'm going to be late. I'm in a hurry. 
he kept on going down and he this urge to go into that thing began to be stronger and stronger the further down the road he went the more uncomfortable he became so he turned around went into the florist and went to talk and he saw the florist with a gun to i forget now if it was even a girl or a guy but uh had a gun to his head and was just about to blow his brains out and he said stop what are you doing and he started talking with him and eventually led this guy to the lord and so here was the Lord prompting him, and he's got a busy schedule, I've got to get going, but the Lord's prompting him to go into this florist. And you know, this happened to Christ all of the time. He's going along. He's got this agenda of what he needs to do. For example, one of the scriptures in there, I think, was Jairus' daughter being healed. He's going to heal Jairus' daughter, and this woman who's hemorrhaging of blood, she touches his garment, is healed, and it could have just ended there. But no, Jesus turns around and he ministers to her, even though it was not something that was planned. Many times, God's divine opportunities for witness and for ministry that he brings into our lives, even amongst our children, are not convenient. And some t people, are, especially if you're really project-oriented and the kids are needing help, it's like, get out of here, kids, I won't get my projects done, you know? And, you have to realize the kids are your project, right? But many of the things were not convenient for Christ either. He took his disciples on vacation. And then, and then God sovereignly brings people along. It's like, oh, great. The disciples are saying, Lord, get rid of these guys. And Christ is moved with compassion for them. So we've got to be sensitive. What is God prompting us to do? And let him blue pencil in our plans. Let him adjust them to his glory. Okay, related to this is point number 24. Will this become a thorn that chokes out your spiritual life by adding anxious cares, desires for riches, or desires for personal pleasure? Now, Christ is not against riches, and you know that from the sermons that we have preached in the past. But he said that riches can choke out our spiritual life. Mark 4.19, Christ says, The cares of this world... The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so it's a very real possibility in our lives that we need to guard against. Sometimes Christians have so much stuff that they're trying to manage that it, it robs them of their ability to deal with their children or the ministry burdens that God has placed in their lives. Their lives are so cluttered. And if that happens to you, you just need to declutter. Luke 8, 14 is similar. It says, Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. So just because it's a lawful activity does not mean it's something that you should be engaged in. Ask, will this become a thorn? Have you sought counsel from at least two other people that you trust to be objective? Let me put up uh, another overhead that we had last time in terms of guidance by counsel. Now you will notice that these are exactly the same triangles that you have uh, on, the, on the previous sheet. Obviously, if you know the answer, you don't need to seek counsel, but when you have doubts, it's very useful to go to other people and see what they have to say. And even if you think you know the answer, Sometimes it's good to check it out with others because, again, of the deception of our hearts and to see what they bring. Now, there's nothing magical about the guidance by counsel because, um, you know, they have the same biblical guidance that we do, uh, providence and subjective guidance. I mean, they're looking at it 
But sometimes if you bring it to other people, they can help you to see blind spots you hadn't noticed before. They can maybe look at it from an angle that will give new insight that you hadn't uh, noticed before. And so that's a very helpful uh, part of guidance. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Here's another one. Are you willing to wait until God's word your subjective leading or your circumstances line up. Saul's whole kingship was tested and brought into jeopardy because he was not willing to wait for what God had said biblically he needed to wait for. And um, it was a combination of providence and the Bible's guidelines there. Now contrast that with David. Uh, David waited for years. He couldn't wait for how many days was it that Saul waited? David waited for years before God providentially allowed what he had clearly been guided to be as a king, allowed it uh, to transpire. And we too frequently, I think, begin to doubt when God's providence is slower than we think it should be. And God's timing is perfect. Let me give you a personal example. I was confident all the way back in 1981, and perhaps even earlier, that God wanted me to plant a church. And I was training for that, and right at the time, I'd been through the church planting training uh, assessment and everything, was going to be sent up to Canada. Right at the time that I was going to go up, God so clearly led me to go to Omaha, which was confusing in its own right. But when I came to Omaha, before I came, I told them, okay, I can only commit to two years. I didn't think that less than two years was realistic, but I thought, well, maybe the Lord wants me to get some experience under my belt. I'll only commit to being at uh, Trinity for two years. Twelve years later, um, I was still wondering, because there were many times in those 12 years that I thought, you know, surely this is time for me to go on and to plant a church. And any time I even so much as thought about it, God put such a check in my spirit, I could not go forward. He just would not give me the, you know, the permission to go ahead. So I continued to uh, faithfully be there. And then there was a time, in a flash, it was all at once that uh, God gave me faith and assurance that I was to resign that week, that I would be given approval by the session, approval by the congregation, approval by presbytery. I had no doubts that that would happen, even though there was a big conflab about that. I'd, I knew that the Lord was going to bring me through that, that I would plant a church, buy a house this side of town. And then within five, uh, after five years, that there would be a transition into having staff. And I was wondering, you know, why again the delay there? But God's delays, he knows why. He knows why. And if God has given you faith, it'll take you through all kinds of, of uh, difficulties uh, in the meantime. Let me give you another example. I was talking with an individual who asked if it was okay for an engaged couple to kiss. And um, he said, well, after all, you know, they are engaged, and the biblical engagement is almost as good as marriage. It takes a divorce to break that, right? Uh, so is it okay? What's wrong with a kiss? Well, I didn't dare give a yes or a no answer. That'd get me in trouble either way that I went on that because, I mean, you can think theoretically. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? And is there only one person in the whole congregation I can't greet with a holy kiss? Well, of course, we're unbiblical in this uh, congregation. I can't get a one of you to give a holy kiss, you know. But uh, in any case, I said, well... You know, there's theoretical possibilities that a kiss would be right, but the kind of kissing you're thinking about, would that be 
foreplay? Is that something that's going to arouse expectations in this other person that you cannot meet? That's called defrauding. If you arouse expectations, it's almost like a promise, and you cannot meet that, then the scripture says you should not do it. And so again, it depends on the circumstance, you know, that you're, uh, that you're uh, looking at. And so we need to be patient. And in this particular situation, the patience would be, okay, God has led us together. We're committed to each other. So we got the subjective guidance that we're going to be married. And we've got the biblical criteria. It's all fitting perfectly. But we've got to wait till the providence brings us to the place where scripture says, yes, now is the time where uh, something that arouses passions can be, uh, can be fulfilled. And so it's not yes or no, it's, well, what kind? And how does it fit the biblical criteria? Number 27. Now, Metter's book does make fun of some of the subjective leadings. We looked at um, last week and, and this one in particular, but the 27th question is, do you have an inner peace and faith that this is God's way? And contrary to what Metters says, there is an incredible subjective peace that God gives to you as a part of his guidance. And when he does that, it's like you don't even have to worry about the future. Uh, Peter says it's a peace that passes, surpasses understanding. Now, there's other aspects to this peace guidance. Romans 14.23 gives one. It says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. So here's a person whose conscience is troubled. He thinks it's sin. So he's got a troubled conscience, a lack of peace, and he shouldn't be troubled. Paul says he shouldn't be troubled, but Paul says because you lack that peace and your conscience is troubled, don't eat. Now you need to educate your conscience and eventually as you become mature, you're going to have peace in that. But that's a different aspect of that, that peace equation. I've got a whole series, and I, I'm not quite sure where, that how, how to train your conscience. But the question comes, do you have peace and faith? Not a sure test, because some people are so immature, so driven by their fleshly fears, that they're in constant state of turmoil. But as you mature, the peace of God that passes all understanding is, is something that can take you through the most troubling turmoil that you might face. And uh, it's an incredible gift, uh, calm in the midst of the storm. I have to admit that it does offend me when people like Metters uh, rob people of these subjective blessings. They are so important. They are such an encouragement. Philippians 4, 7 indicates that as we pray rightly, think rightly, and act rightly, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Praise God. Number 28 deals with action. Action on what we already know to be true is imperative if God's going to give you more guidance and wisdom. Okay, you can't steer a ship that's standing still. <laughs> you steer a ship when it's moving, right? John 7:17 7, says, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And so when God gives illumination from the Scripture, if you're not acting on that, why should he give you more illumination on the scripture? And it's not just in the moral area, it's in the wisdom area as well. Um, God many times gives us more wisdom and guidance as we've already stepped into the areas that he's already shown to us. And I give you an example. The Genesis 24, 27, Abraham's servants looking for a bride for Isaac. Now, would you trust your servant to find a bride for you? <laughs> It's really a cool story of the Lord's guidance and Isaac's trust in the Lord's guidance as well. But the point I'm making in your outline there 
is that uh, the guidance he receives is only because he has already stepped and walked into the areas that he knew. Okay? And that's very typical of how the Lord works. God opens up the next steps of what we will be able to do when we begin acting with what we are already able to do. So don't expect guidance if you're not a person of action. He expects action. Well, let me end by emphasizing that you don't have to ask for guidance for every little detail of life because there's broad principles of Scripture where God says, you know, do what you want to do in these areas, whatever you want to do. As Metters points out, a sign of maturity is the ability to make your decisions within the boundaries of God's Word. And obviously, in most areas of life, we can just do whatever we want to do. So, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and Adam's gone out, and he's done his day's work of picking apples, and he brings them home for Eve to make supper with. And it would be ludicrous for Eve to go to God and say, Lord, please give me guidance as to whether I should have baked apple pie or apple fritters or apple dumplings or whether we should eat these apples raw. Because the Lord had already given general guidance, and he had said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now that word freely meant you make your own decisions. I want you to grow up, okay? Don't be overly dependent upon me. You make decisions and uh, you'll grow over time in light of those decisions. Romans 4.15 says, where there is no law, neither is there violation. Where there is no law, neither is there violation. If the Bible hasn't addressed it, you can do whatever you want. You want chocolate milkshake or vanilla milkshake. You don't need guidance. Do whatever you want, okay? Here is Deuteronomy 14.26. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now, after God gave such a wide-open invitation, it would be an insult to God's divine plan if we were to say, well, Lord, please give me guidance on what I should eat. Could you make a decision for me? I don't know. There's so many things to choose and what to eat. And God says, well, whatever your heart desires. But no, Lord, please give me some guidance and you make the decision for me. And God says, whatever your heart's desire. That is my decision. That's, that's, that's biblical guidance, right? And so we need to take our Christian liberties seriously. Too many people are bound up and shriveled within themselves because they're not willing to make decisions on their own as a part of our maturity. It's the gift of liberty. Now, I've given you a ton to chew on, and hopefully um, most of it is corn and not too many rocks uh, thrown in there. But uh, I just want to exhort you, don't dread the future. Anticipate the future and rejoice in it, knowing that you serve a God who delights in guiding his children. Romans 8.14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so as sons and daughters, guidance is your heritage. Charles Hodge said, the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. They are led by an ever-present Father of infinite wisdom and love. And so may each one of us grow more and more in the joy of knowing this loving Heavenly Father who guides us. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the guidance that you bring into our lives. This has been kind of a heavy uh, series and tons of material, but I pray that uh, each one of us would have the eyes of our understanding illumined, that we might uh, rejoice in the provisions that you have given to us, biblically, providentially, and subjectively by the presence of your Spirit. 
Help us to walk in the light that you give to us and to rejoice that you are a God who goes before and behind us, who undergirds us, and that your plans for us in the future are not for calamity. Thank you, Father, for your provision. We love you, we trust you, and we go in the light of this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen.